This podcast is supported by the Rebecca Vassi Trust, a UK-based charity which promotes the art of narrative photography through granting bursary awards to up-and-coming photographers and funding public education projects like this one. This podcast has full editorial independence, and the views expressed in this series are not necessarily those of the Trust. Welcome to Season 2 of the Photoethics Podcast. I'm your host, Savannah Dodd, and I'm the founder of the Photography Ethics Center. Each week, I'll be talking with an accomplished photographer about the ethics of their practice. Today, in episode number one, we'll be talking with Tasneem Al-Sultan about planning for publication. Born in the United States and raised between the United Kingdom and Saudi, where she's currently based, Tasneem Al-Sultan is a photographer, artist, and speaker. Her work largely focuses on documenting social issues and rights-based topics in Saudi Arabia and the Arab Gulf region through a gender lens, challenging stereotypical representations of the Middle East and portraying a region and people that do not conform to expectations. Covering stories primarily for the New York Times and National Geographic, Tasneem documents groundbreaking developments in Saudi and the region, including most recently the lifting of the driving ban for Saudi women and the lifting of the ban on Saudi women entering sports arenas. Could we start by you just telling me a little bit about your work and the kind of work that you do? So I'm a photographer and I I love using the camera to kind of push boundaries and to initiate discussion on a lot of topics that might be a bit uncomfortable for us initially. I feel, at least from my own upbringing, that there's a lot of issues that we tend to steer away from if they make us feel uncomfortable. So I try to do the opposite of why do we act a certain way? Why do we feel uncomfortable around a certain theme? Especially if there's social and and gender issues, then that's usually the closest to my heart. That's really interesting. And I can imagine a really difficult work. And also I can imagine it'd be quite difficult at times to bring people along with you, like the people that you're working with, especially if you're focusing on things that are uncomfortable, things that people don't really want to talk about. Have you found that in your, in your work or how do you, how do you deal with that? I think not just in Saudi, but in, in the neighboring countries, we don't like to talk about anything that deals with poverty because we try to ignore that there are a lot of, you know, poor people in our society. We don't want to talk about people who lack privilege because in general, a lot of us are privileged. So then there are a lot of things that we don't, we try to ignore. And the more that we ignore it, then it doesn't exist. You know, we deny that they even exist. Mm -hmm. And I think with photography, it's saying it's a statement, but it doesn't always have to be my, it's not my story. It's theirs. So I hope that with with a photo and a a really good caption that you're trying to trigger people's emotions and evoke their thoughts to feel that, oh, there's a question. Wait, they exist? Huh, I didn't know, but yet I'm from this country or from this nation or group of people. So then it makes, I'm hoping that it makes you wonder and makes you realize that they exist. The people that you thought didn't exist before. Now that sounds like really powerful work and really important work as well. Maybe could you tell me about like, how did you start out with this? Um, Was it very natural for you to sort of start to uncover things that were uncomfortable? Or did you sort of spend some time photographing things that you weren't as passionate about before you, you sort of got on that path? 
No, I think the opposite. I started photographing first my children, my daughters, when they were much younger. And I started 10 years ago saying when I started as in professionally, like I was charging for me photographing people's families and, and then weddings. And then, and I think the one thing that I wanted to establish myself is that my work is documentary, but it's natural, but it's also, it doesn't have huge setup. I don't use like I bought the thing, I bought those equipments when I just started, but then quickly I realized that I don't, I don't want that. I don't want the equipment to be how I photograph. I wanted the story to be the lead. And the more I was connected with the people that I was photographing and their story resonated with me, that I can also share that excitement and that passion with everyone else that was seeing those photos, whether it's the bride or you know, a stranger, they, I wanted people to feel that they can relive those moments through photography. So I started investing in myself and I started taking workshops and I started traveling and reading books and reading blogs. And like, I really, really kind of invested my time and my energy into learning a craft that I enjoyed and loved as a child. Like I had a camera when I was nine, but I didn't really ever think of myself as a photographer until I started charging and being able to kind of, you know, invoice for that, for something that I thought was a hobby initially. I think that that probably resonates with so many people. I think I had that experience as well, you know, that I, I think I've only in the past couple of years felt comfortable enough to actually call myself a photographer. And I think it's a really, it's a re- real imposter syndrome. I think plagues a lot of, a lot of photographers. It's something that I grew up in that, I mean, photography is not a real job. Art is not a real job. You have to have an office. You have to have office hours. You have to, you know, so it's that mindset that we, I grew up with at least to always feel like I'm not doing something real. And then it doesn't help that I'm a freelancer. And I think with freelancers, then there's no, there, there is a commitment from one side, but then I'm not always promised that I'm going to get a, um, payment every month. So that doesn't help. And I think health insurance and just travels, it's, it becomes exhausting. And I'm always kind of weary of when will my body tell me that I can't do this no more. Mm. So I think that's one thing. And, and even like being photographing for National Geographic, like I have a lot of people saying, oh my God, that's amazing. But then in my mind, I'm like, is it just because I'm Saudi? Is it because there's no one else? Is it because mm. like, I'm always trying to ask myself, do I deserve this? And I don't know if, if it's just a woman thing or it's just me or like this imposter syndrome is always in my mind. It's always kind of something that I, I ask myself. Yeah, abs- there's so much in that. I mean, I think on one hand, the whole thing about freelancers and working freelance and not having that security, I think that there's a whole really important discussion that that could be had about that. And I think it's all very, very complicated. And I'm sure it is all very tied in a lot of ways to imposter syndrome. I think that's a really interesting point that I might not have have connected. I think that's a really useful thing to think about. And I I think you said as well, thinking about, you know, how long is this something that you're going to be able to do for a long period of time? Because it is so taxing. What are your, what are your thoughts about that? Or, or do you think that, there's a better type of balance that you're working toward? Or do you think it's more something that the conditions that many photographers are working in is just not set up for people to be able to sustain that kind of lifestyle for a long time? Especially during COVID, I think a lot of us have realized that we can't leave our homes. We have to photograph stories that are not, you know, outside. 
we can't leave our cities or our regions or our countries for m- most of us. So I think it kind of gave this wake up call to a lot of us to ask, okay, what's next? How can I make it sustainable and do what I enjoy and et cetera, et cetera, you know? So I, I think for me, I've started thinking outside of the box. So I'm, I was a lecturer at university teaching English and now I'm thinking, okay, maybe I can start teaching photography now. And I'm, I'm at least having this discussion and setting up start meeting, you know, universities in the country. I'm a Canon ambassador, which means I'm one of the mentors that they have. So I love teaching. And I, because I love that, that I'm feeling like, okay, I'm excited about doing something different, but with the same, you know, with photography in mind. But this has taken me a year. <laughs> I still haven't, you know, done much with that. So I, uh, yeah, we'll see what I do next year. Well, that's all. That sounds really exciting for sure. I, I also love teaching. I think it's it's really rewarding in a lot of ways. I'm wondering about maybe some of the if you can maybe talk us through one or two of the projects that you've that you've worked on that you've found particularly impactful and and maybe what kinds of ethical issues might have arisen. So a lot of my work is about women and their stories regards to marriage, divorce, having a man in their life, not, you know, being single, a woman who left Saudi as a man and now is seeking, actually receiving, I guess, asylum in Italy to become a woman. So all these stories of women going through emotional hurdles more than anything else, more than societal and religious, I guess, obstacles. A lot of them I photograph and they're open to photography and then they change their mind because they realize that this could be something that would put them at risk. It can bring uh, attention that they don't want. And it's my job to respect that and understand that it's not about me and that my time and energy to find them is usually those are always the best stories, to be honest, the ones that I will later be asked to remove. I have to do that. I have to kind of listen because I'm one of those people from that society as in I understand how society can affect you directly or indirectly in a way that you don't want to put anyone else at risk. So usually that's my main, (laughs) I guess, my main issue that, or my main trouble um, that I face. A lot of times also, like I've been working on a, a project in the last few years, and it's about the LGBTQ community in Saudi and also the, the Arab Gulf uh, nations. And a lot of times the people that I get to photograph or interview will ask me only to photograph them and only be able to publish it if both their parents have passed away because they've not had that discussion or sit down with their parents. And sometimes even if their parents know, they still don't want to be out in public as gay or basically a member of that community. And I think that's the reason that I always explain to them is this is not for publication yet. I not only respect that, but I also understand that this project is not to be published in the near future. It's more just to announce and state that this community has always been part of the Saudi or, you know, Kuwaiti or Bahraini community and that they always existed. And I I don't like this kind of view that has always been in, in the Western publications that, you know, the Western media has given them voice. No, no, they've always existed. They've always been part of the society. And I understand that it's something that I won't share for years and years until maybe, I don't know, one in 20 years, I can say, oh, these are photos of people that I once knew or something. I don't know. Well, I wonder if there's a relationship between 
being freelance and having the ability maybe to respect that? I don't know. I feel like would would pressures be different? I mean, I'm assuming that you're doing these stories as a, a freelancer and not for a publication. Is that is that correct? Yes. But at the same time, those projects, at least the first one about women has been published a lot of times and it's gone. It's received a lot of international recognition, which I'm very lucky for. But it's also I don't think it changes, at least not for me. It hasn't changed the way I think. A lot of stories I've worked for. I worked for The New York Times for two years as a freelancer, but um, and I, I kind of dedicated a lot of the stories that I photographed for them. And it didn't change much. It made me realize that not all the photos that I submit are the ones that are going to be used. And it might be shifted the way that, not the captions itself, but the way that the story's direction takes place. So that kind of has, I guess, made me think that I have to take more control of my images and my stories and my captions than I did initially when I just started photographing for publications. That's, yeah, I think that's such an important point. And, and I think that that's such a, a difficult relationship, I think, probably for photographers to navigate, I would imagine, that, you know, you don't want to set parameters that might preclude you from getting future work, but at the same time, this responsibility to the story and, and to the people who, who are featured in it. How have you negotiated that when working with a publication to ensure that, it appears the way that it should and that that reflects the the reality. A lot of times I try to have a good relationship with the editors and I try to explain exactly my fear and my worries about, you know, these women have opened up their lives and let me photograph them in a way that they haven't let anyone beforehand photograph Mm -hmm. and given me intimate access in a way that needs to be full of respect and love and admiration. I don't always photograph people that I look up to, you know, but that doesn't mean that I can't respect them. And I love actually learning to go beyond my own judgment. So sometimes I meet someone and I have a preconceived, you know, notion of, oh, this person has, I don't know, they need help or they are in a, in a way that I don't usually, I didn't know enough about. So I kind of, I don't want to say I did, I, I didn't respect them or love them. I just, didn't think highly of them. And then once they open up and they give me their story, I'm in shock and in awe of how amazing they are and how sincere and how encouraging they, like I've learned so much from the people that I photographed that I have always come back feeling more inspired from the women that have opened up their lives. So I feel like I, I don't, I don't like this idea that as a photographer, you're the hero. I don't think I'm, I've done anything great. I think that I've just held a toy. I've held a camera to take stories. And if there's anything that I've done well, that it's just, I've been lucky enough to find and meet those amazing inspirational humans that have let me into their lives. And that's it. So I have to just honor that and explain to the editors that this image can only be used in this narrative and in this story and can't be sold or you know used in, in another fashion or means. Absolutely. I, I feel like I feel like what you've just said really speaks to your process, you know, the, the way that you engage with the people that you're photographing, because I feel like to walk away with such a more nuanced and a deeper understanding of maybe who a person is, you have to have done the work, you know, mm-hmm. 
And I feel like that really comes through in, in how you're talking about this. How, how do you go about that when you're, especially when you're approaching somebody who um, maybe you don't look up to, or maybe you don't have the highest regard for? So I think because I photographed weddings initially, and I still photograph weddings now, I've worked with a few, a few, very, very few, but with women who are very tense and would fit in the category of like a bridezilla initially. And then I, I have to approach this woman who's usually on the most stressed events that she thinks is going to happen in her life. And I would have to like go on, you know, kneel on my knees and try to be as close as possible and just say, you know, I'm here. I'm going to photograph your day as best as I can. The story is not about me, the photographer. It's all about you. And just take a deep breath and remember that you are among your most loved ones. This is the most cherished event that you'll have. And just try to enjoy your time and your day. And it's just a big celebration. It, no one cares about the flowers, color and the tone and, you know, the light and everything. And I think use, usually working with someone who is extremely tense on that day. Again, not all of the women are, but some, some very few. But learning from that, learning to work with women who are extremely stressed out. I feel and also like I think on weddings, you have to be a businesswoman, you have to be an interior designer, you have to be a therapist, you have to do so many things on that one day <laughs> that you kind of, you're used to juggling so many different things in one in one place. And I, I don't know, I, I guess that's why. So basically I try to force myself to fall in love with the person that I photographed that day. And I realize that the more I'm inspired and the more I love the person in front of me, the camera will really, really shed light in a way that's beautiful and mm. just sensitive and it's very different I think you can see when you have no connection with the person in front of you and when you do you will try to photograph them in the way that you would want to be photographed have you you know I'm thinking about what you're saying and I'm, I'm wondering have you, you so you photographed your your daughters you said have you photographed other members of your family and how have you found that process because I feel like it, it's a very intimate process really that you're describing and and it, and I wonder how that's been for you when you're working with people who are closer to you. Yeah, for sure. I think when I'm photographing my daughters now and they're taller than me and they're, you know, they, they're teenagers and it's very different than when they were small and cute and just, it was so much easier because they didn't really understand what they were doing. And now they're more like glaring at me and, you know, they have to, they have to have their full attitude and like, <laughs> it's just very different but at the same time I love photographing my family not always I don't do it as much as I should and as much as I did earlier on in my career I guess because now it's a task and it's not mm -hmm. the same way as before it was just natural I was doing it all the time mm -hmm. but I I do have photos where I look now and I I think photographers don't photograph their families enough yeah and I think it's important to document our own life. I photographed my grandmother for my projects and my youngest daughter. And my parents were part of it, but they were in the background. And I realized that initially my mother was always glaring at me whenever I photographed them. And she didn't like it. She was always complaining about, you know, why are you not giving this, this privacy? And then after they went, they visited one of the galleries that was exhibiting my work. My mom said, I want to be in one of the frames. I want to be one mm -hmm. of the stories because she realized that all the women that I photographed were inspirational to me. Mm -hmm. So she approached me and wanted to be part of it. And I haven't included her yet, but I, I just, it kind of made me think that sometimes we also don't give the chance 
I mean, I assumed that because my mom was glaring initially and she was like telling me off and she didn't, that she wasn't supportive. But I think we all want to be a hero in your story. You know, we all want to have that. No, that that's a really, a really touching story. I think um, there is sort of a lot more complication, isn't there? Yeah, from, from what you're describing as well, when, when we approach our families and, and how we handle that. And um, I, you said that you think it's important that ph- photographers document their own lives. And this is something that's come up in a, in a few of the, the episodes in season one as well about photographing things closer to home. And I think that that's sort of been imposed on us with the coronavirus context. But I think it's also maybe a bit of a shift in thinking around photography in general lately. And I guess I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more why, what is the value in that? And why do you see that as something that that should be a focus maybe or or considered more, more deeply for photographers? I think because we've seen ourselves as, yeah, we're storytellers, but we don't want to share our own vulnerability with everyone else. We're used to doing the same to everyone, to, to the other side where I'm holding the camera, I'm telling the story. Mm. I will not be vulnerable. And I think with COVID, a lot of photographers, especially women I, I've noticed, have started kind of, it was okay for them to share their vulnerability. And it's not it's not the usual state that we've been used to. I think that's important with my project, especially the first one, I shared my own divorce story and how I've kind of walked out of that after 10 years of being in an unhappy marriage, I finally got divorced and Saudi's very difficult. So I kind of walk you through all the steps that went into my life. And there was also like several hurdles that I didn't want to share in my own marriage or in my own family because it's too much. And I don't like that, that view of being pitied ever. So I, that made me realize that I don't think women want to be pitied or humans don't want to be pitied Mm -hmm. either, at least the ones that I've met. And I, I love that. So then how do I, how do I bring your focus and attention to someone's story without bringing attention that's full of pity? It's more in awe and more of like, wow, that person is a hero in your mind because they've overcome all those hurdles in a way that's that's empowering. So I think there's there is a way to do that. And I think that's what I've tried to focus on. And I hope that everyone around me does the same where it's, I guess, instead of showing a, a homeless person who has no opportunity, we can, if it's their voice and it's their photo, then why don't they have a say in how that story has been told? In my in my experience, I've usually I've usually shared the caption that I will write about them. Mm. And I think that's a few of them will either say, you know, um, yeah, amazing, thanks, or they'll say, can you please remove this? Um, and I think that's important. They need to like their photo and they need to be accepting of the caption that you'll say about them. Whereas most publications that I've worked with initially in the past will not allow that. Right. I feel like what you're saying is that by photographing yourself, you're able to to better empathize, I guess, with the people yes. that you're photographing. I feel like that's that's a really valuable lesson and that makes that makes so much sense. And I've, you've also mentioned several times about captions and I, you talked a little bit about it there. And I, I do think that that's something that we, I definitely haven't talked enough about on this podcast and something that maybe generally we don't quite put as much emphasis on or thought into as the image, which is understandable to an extent, but there is a very important role that the caption does play. And how, how do you, how do you do that? How do you, how do you write the cap? Do you write the captions 
and then send it to the people? Um, so I'm kind of writing the story as the person will tell me and then after, or I record it or something. And then one paragraph or one sentence or two will stand out. And I feel like that will summarize their whole story. When I'm working with um, on a certain assignment, then a lot of times the captions have to be where, what, when, why, etc. But if I'm giving a caption of a story that I've heard, then it just brings you another layer that you didn't understand, that you didn't know. And it res- like I hope that this story will resonate with you mm-hmm. in the way that it did with me. I guess when I, so when I started photography, I took a workshop with Maggie Stieber and she's an amazing photographer and very much inspirational. And I remember the few days that I took her workshop, I cried nearly every day because she was explaining beyond just the beautiful, colorful, vibrant photo. There was something more. And there's this photo that is favorite of mine. I have it printed. It's in my room. It's, and it's the, of this woman, just, she's standing in the water. She's, you know, in a beach and her face is kind of cradling, I guess, or I don't know, she's being cradled, I guess, by the beach, the surface of the water. And then you know that it's in Miami and she's in the beaches of Miami, the shores. And she, uh, I think her name is Ellie. She is born during the Pedro Pan era, which is a group of children that were born when Fidel Castro just took power and their parents were very worried that Fidel Castro will start having a lot, um, a lot of children join the army. So they sent their kids to America. So she was one of the children that was sent to the U.S. And she never went back. So they were called the Pedro Pan kids because they were never going to grow older in the memory of their parents. And she grew up in the U.S. And every day she would swim the shores of Miami. And to her, that was the shores of memory because those... that water will also hit the shores of Cuba. And she swore that she'll only go back when Fidel Castro died. She died two years before he did. So it's just this, like I get goosebumps now, but it's just such a sad story. And it's of thousands of kids that we, I will never meet, I will never know. But then when I saw the image, it's beautiful and it's just so serene. And then you read the caption and you feel emotionally triggered. And then you think about all the children that have either lost their lives or their families. Like, it's just, you think. And that's how I I kind of like um, decided that I wanted to do something similar where I have images that are beautiful, but I want the the story itself to have a much more powerful impact than just the beautiful images only. When, so when you're working with a, a news or an outlet with with a story how much control or power or say do you get over sort of what kinds of captions are used and and whether the information that that is really important to you makes it into the publication Um, with Saudi stories it was a bit different because a lot of the times the editors have no idea what's happening in the country they've never visited Saudi so I kind of have to really work on my own and keep explaining to the editors. And a lot of times they've been, I've worked with amazing editors who have really supported me and pushed me and sometimes with writers who I explain exactly what's happening. And, you know, I'm not allowed to go in because it's just men or I don't, you know, I have a press pass, but they don't want a Western publication in it. So many different things that happen. And I just have to keep the editors knowing what's happening all the time. I remember once that I mean, several times actually, where I photograph people and the women have changed their mind. Like the first group of women who went, um, who drove in 1990 when it was illegal to drive, obviously, and they got arrested. 
And they invited me to come to the gathering and the celebration of the announcements of the women going to drive in 10 months or something. But they didn't want me to bring my camera. And only because I was Saudi and because I was part of, you know, um, I don't know, they, they trusted me to come and meet them and speak to them, but they didn't want the American writer to come. They didn't want anyone outside to come. Even if it's not just to speak, they don't want to meet anyone. They just felt that this is part of our celebration and we don't want anyone else to be part of it. So I get to participate in a lot of these amazing events, but just not as a photographer, just as a witness. And I think that's also as important that there is a, it's okay to let go of the camera and to just embrace the moment and to just live it because sometimes it's difficult to, to separate myself. Like I'm only good if I am valued if I have a camera. Yeah. And I guess any, any experiences that you have will inevitably make your work richer and make your knowledge and understanding deeper as well, I would assume. Yeah. I think because I'm part of the community and this is my country, it's my people, then I can't really escape. Yeah. I'm not a parachute photographer. I can't just leave and do as I please. I'm part of this. So I will be under question by the people that I photograph and also I don't want to not just be under question. They will basically find my father and, and tell him, you know, your daughter has done this. So I, I don't, it's not just, you know, a fear, to be honest. It's more of respect that I don't want to put anyone in a situation where they're in trouble in the same way that I wouldn't want anyone to do that to me. Yeah. And it sounds like there's also, you know, maybe not a driving factor, but there is an element as well of accountability in that, that yes. maybe, um, you know, a parachute photographer wouldn't have that kind of accountability to the people sure. um, that, they, sure. that they're photographing. So I think that's a really, a really interesting point. I wonder as well, if you could talk, if there are any, um, I haven't had anybody on the podcast, I don't think, who who spends much time photographing weddings. And so I was wondering if there are any ethical considerations that you would like to share with us about being a wedding photographer. Yeah. So most of, I photographed over 200 weddings in 21 different countries. Most of them are in the Arab region, in Saudi. And a lot of the weddings that I photograph are not allowed. They don't want to be published ever. And that's an issue because sometimes they want a discount because they'll allow me to publish it and then they'll change their mind. Mm. So I have a contract, but still, even after they sign the contract, they might change their mind. <laughs> so what do you do? And a lot of times, you know, a bride doesn't even want her hand to be in a photo. She doesn't want the setup because of the evil eye or because she doesn't want anyone gossiping or because she wants, like, there's so many reasons that I don't necessarily agree with. But at the end of the day, I have to rem remind myself that it's not about me and it's not about my ego. And I don't, you know, I can't be very much hurt about this. Like there, the best photos are usually the ones that I can't publish. The best weddings, the ones that have amazing stories are the ones that the couple will change their mind afterward because they didn't know how media will be, you know, hurtful or they might, I don't know. Like it's just so many different reasons, but I enjoy the ones that I can publish and I enjoy the stories that I can share. And I love inspiring people with stories of love and how they met. Cause I think those moments that are so mundane of like you meeting a random person through Twitter or through a restaurant or a gathering or families or friends, or even if it's an arranged meetup, that person that was no one in your life will become everything 
and you're to live with this person forever because you've decided that this person is your, you know, your counterpart, your equal. And I think that's amazing. It's very inspirational and I love it. And I, I love stories about love. So I'm a sucker for that. And I'm, I'm okay going back and back again and charging sometimes very little stories that are barely basically covered. Maybe my flight, maybe didn't, but it's okay. Because to me, it's like, I get, I get that energy from that story. I, I, yeah, I want, I think I'm a better person when I'm with you. And when you hear things like this, statements like that, you're just like, oh, okay. I love humans today. I can, I can live, I can live here. I wanted to ask as well, you know, you talked about sometimes that having to let go of the camera. I feel yeah. like you're also describing sometimes having to let go of the story or let go of your own work because you know, people withdraw consent or something. And I can imagine that that's a very, a very difficult thing to do. You know, I feel like you're really, you've come to a point that you're really at peace with that and your un- understanding of that. But I think I'm that not that's at peace with it. I get frustrated <laughs> and I get annoyed and I start crying and like, it's, it's not, it's not great, but I'm just, I'm just now pretending that I'm at peace with it. Okay. No, that's helpful too, though. <laughs> Absolutely. Is there anything that I should have asked you, but I didn't ask you? I think it's just as photographers, it's, it's unethical if we just take a photo and we don't let the person in front of, if it's not a public space, like if it's a public space, then I think I I have that leeway of you're all part of one big story, but you're not characters that I'm going to tell your story. But I, I don't know. I see a lot of photos, for instance, when there's, there's war or there's poverty in, in it, I guess, in Myanmar, for instance, and the Rohingya refugees, everyone flew in to photograph people at their worst moments. And I think in my mind, I'm always going through this question of like, well, did it help? Did anything actually change? Did the governments embrace them and take them in? Like, no. And everyone was photographing the same people at the same time. And um, I just feel bad for the people who are being photographed. They're going through so many things. And we don't care as the photographers we really don't care we're just photographing and leaving and we're leaving them with I don't know all the trauma that they've suffered so I I think I'm I don't know how I would react if I was one of those photographers there but I I hope that I would have more sensitivity and respect towards the people that I'm seeing in front of my eyes being traumatized again and again Mm -hmm. I guess and this, this sort of leads to my last question, but I do want to ask everybody, what does photography ethics mean to you? Or what does it mean to be an ethical photographer? It's to photograph humans in a way that you would want to be photographed in. When it's sensitive and it's, it's respectful and it's not demeaning in any way. It's not bringing, like you, I don't care who you are. You can be a tyrant, you can be a horrible person, but it's just the the fact that I have, I mean, I think you can ruin your own reputation by just saying, by stating things. So that's your story. That's the caption, right? And if someone is amazing and smart and, and wonderful and inspiring, then that's their own words that they have said. But if it's a camera, then the way that you play with the light, the way that you control the portrait and the pose, you can, it can be in a way that brings them up or also brings them down. It can be a way that's very colonialist or it can be something that embraces the person and, and brings them 
their own voice and their own entitlement, I guess. And I think it's just, there's so many things that we need to learn that a lot of times we miss. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Photoethics Podcast. The aim of this podcast is to share new insights about photography ethics with others. So if you heard something you liked, please share this podcast with someone who would appreciate it. The links to all things mentioned in this episode are available in the show notes at www.photoethics.org. Join me next week when we hear from Melissa Grew on Empathy with Wildlife. If you're enjoying this podcast, why don't you check out our online courses? We've developed a series of three online courses designed specifically for photojournalists and documentary photographers. We discuss questions like, how do we achieve accuracy in our photographs? What's the relationship between power and consent? And when, if ever, should we intervene? These online courses come with perks, like access to an online community group for discussion and Q&A opportunities with me, the course leader. Enroll today at www.photoethics.thinkific.com or go to www.photoethics.org and click online courses. This podcast was edited by Ellie Gascoigne.